Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. We shall not weary and we shall not rest. We are thousands strong to tell the world reverse Roe versus Wade. Welcome to Life After Dobbs. I'm Alexandra DeSanctis, and together with Ryan Anderson, I'm the co-author of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Today we'll talk with Marjorie Dannenfelser, the president of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, one of the largest pro-life organizations in the United States. Marjorie has been a leader of SBA since its earliest days and was part of its founding team in the early 1990s. During both the 2016 and 2020 elections, she served as national co-chair of the Pro-Life Voices for Trump Coalition. She's the author of Life is Winning, Inside the Fight for Unborn Children and Their Mothers. Marjorie, thank you so much for joining us today. I've really been looking forward to it. Thank you. And we want to thank you, too, of course, for all the work that you've done for the pro-life movement for decades now um, to get us to this point. We're recording after Roe v. Wade was finally overturned, and we'll get into all the implications of that and how we got here. But um, Ryan and I are, are very grateful for everything you've done to help get us here. I've heard that somehow jettison back into the last, you know, like 10 years ago, say somehow I would be talking to you two. You were really young then. But anyway, talking <laughs> um, about uh, the Roe versus Wade being overturned. It would have been so encouraging, but God doesn't work like that. So <laughs> I know. Yeah, we, we never get to know until it's quite over. But um, so right. as as we've heard in your bio, you've been in this fight for most of your, your career. Um, tell us a little bit about how you think we got here. What what work was necessary, both yours and, and other people's, to get the ruling that we got in Dobbs? Well, I, I think of it in, in phases and in waves, um, like the feminist movement, even um, the begin, but but clearly clearly different because of its historical roots, and beginning with just shock and awe of one day every single pro life protection being wiped off the books, and I was really young then, so I didn't know what that what that was. But there were those a handful, only a handful of people who saw that coming, and um, in large part. At, living at the center of the faith in the Catholic Church, but certainly some beyond. But in large part, they were the people who really just in the very beginning, especially, began the fight. They felt the spur of that uh, of that pain and um, and began the movement in ways that uh, that educated, that built an incredibly strong um, pregnancy care movement to the point where we have almost three thousand across the country. Now they worked really hard legislatively within that education, and then they they um, made an attempt to uh, kind of early on in the early '80s uh, put an end to Roe by um, legislative or amendment processes, and both of those sadly failed. Uh, kind of teaching the movement a little bit of the lesson there about working together and not having the same vote with two approaches on the same same time zone. And then moving ahead, that kind of, I think of, I think really a, a lot of years that some would say is a wasteland, but not at all because of all the people who were doing just pure education in an organic way, meaning home, small groups all over the country and churches everywhere. And then finally, I would say about 10 years ago, the, um, the strengthening of the pro-life muscle, the building of the pro-life muscle uh, at the center of politics so that we could have a president, Senate, court, perfect case, overturn, and then now what we see passing state by state by state protections again, full circle after all these years. 
I, I want to ask you two follow-ups to that. One was um, something we were ch chatting about before we actually started recording about your own kind of conversion um, and the role that one of the you know pro-life intellectual leaders of the movement, um, Father Richard John Newhouse, played for you. Um, you know, I was fortunate; I got to uh, live and work with Father Newhouse uh, for what ended up being the last two years of his life, and so he was a hugely um, important, formative experience for me. I, I would say, you know, Richard John Newhouse and Robert George were the two biggest mm -hmm. formative influences for me. And then, you know, you were saying he played a role in, in, in your conversion as well. So I want to ask you about that. But then also, I want you to follow up more about the building of the political muscle, because I think mm -hmm. that's so important. And it's something that social conservatives for so long have overlooked. You know, we ask people to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And we have lots of priests and lots of um, pastors and lots of lawyers we didn't have that political muscle part um, uh, until SBA list really uh, came around. So, you know, those those two kind of follow ups, one's the more personal, one's the more uh, political. And I think, you know, it symbolizes how we need both. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Doing the doing the right thing uh, turns out to be the politically smart thing to do. And that's that has that wasn't an accident. Of course, as you know, well know, uh, Ryan is as well or more than any what that takes. It's not fun. <laughs> um, nobody really got into it because it was just like, you just uh, know that it's going to be the most intellectually pure place that you could possibly be. And, you know, all the, all the um, debates are going to, are going to be uplifting. Anyway, let me just go first to the personal. And I appreciate that question. I, I was Episcopalian um, and very pro-choice, I called it. And I went to, uh, I went to Duke. That was my, you know, that was my hope to go to Duke and be a doctor. And I went to pre-med and that was a mistake right away. I figured that out. Chemistry was not my strong suit and um, got weeded out of that. And then I loved, I always loved politics. I was in it. You know, I was very involved in it in a pro-choice and Republican fashion. Um, and so, but during that course at, in college, I think a lot of us can track back like major changes and you're so impatient to get everything right, right away. Like you got to get truth sorted out. Let's just, you know, make this, make, uh, uh, make sure we get the bottom line quickly. For me, I went from pre-med to, uh, being a philosophy major at the end. Um, also um, kind of serving me up to convert very soon to the Catholic church. And Richard John Newhouse was a big part of that, that yearning for, um, intellectual satisfaction is a is a uh can be painful but it is also one of the biggest gifts i think that you can ever receive is just not being satisfied with faulty arguments not being satisfied with skipping over assumptions like when people say my body my choice which is of course what i said um and then later just embarrassingly realizing how shallow that was and um i started reading um first things when I was, I, I think I must've been a senior in college. And I, I just remember collecting all of them. And I remember they were like, uh, they were like crack for me. I couldn't get enough of them. And I just wouldn't give any of them away. I wouldn't even let people borrow them. It was just <laughs> fine. You know? And it really just satisfied so much of that, that hunger. Um, and it was such a, it was like falling in love. You know, you never can look back. It was so it was so connected to my pro-life position, too. Like once, you know, you can't go back. And then, you know, I, what I loved about him, Newhouse, is that his sense of humor, he had a, a sense of, uh, of the Episcopal Church that I thought was a hilarious or the Anglican Church. Um, and uh, 
And he just felt like a friend, even though I'm never even, I didn't have the benefit of what you had, which was friendship with him, Ryan. But um, I never even met him, but I felt like I knew him. Wow. You know, I've heard so many people, um, that very phrase, I've never met him, but I felt like I knew him. <laughs> um, because his his writing style was so distinctive that you could almost hear his voice while you're reading it. Yeah. And, and that fostered like that a personal relationship with someone who, you know, you're just reading once a month, people who read the back of the book first, you know, they turn to the back of the magazine yeah. to read his column. Brian, I think if I'd had the chance to meet him, I'm not sure that I would have. I had this weird thing, like Walker Percy, the same. He was my favorite author, hands down, nobody better. And I had an opportunity to meet him once. And I'm thinking, no, I think I'll just keep him the way he is. <laughs> <laughs> just might mess things up. Though I hear New House was nothing like that at all. It sounded very... In, in, in no way melancholic or shy, more of a... Oh, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, so so let me um, ask you to say more about what it... I mean, t tell for, for listeners who aren't familiar with... I guess SBA List is now SBA Pro-Life America. Well done, yes. And I mean, and, and let me ask you, is, is this... I mean, when it was founded, it was modeled off of Emily's List. Is it now... Um, uh, kind of mirroring NARAL pro-choice America. Someone so didn't the, read my oh. my expose on this, huh, Marjorie? <laughs> Ryan must not have tuned in. I didn't. I have. I'll be honest. I've I've been busy for the past couple of weeks. I've not been able to keep up with all my normal reading. But oh, I love the name change. If that's part of the, re I mean, well, gosh, that's symbolizing great, that. It's a great idea, but no, actually, okay. <laughs> we the reason. Well, we we were model on Emily's list in 19, 1992, You're the woman. And it was all Emily's, Emily's List type women. So we were we reformed in reaction. And that's just not a way you want to be forever. And we certainly are not at a reactive place right now. We're in, on offense in, in all of America. And I've always, and you have too, both of you have seen you write about it. What we do in the United States can be a beacon for the rest of the world. So up until now, it's we've been a, a strong leader in the wrong direction um, but now we can um, undo some of that. So yeah, the the whole idea was to uh, was to do what every other effective lobby that takes itself seriously does. Think tobacco lobby, unions, um, right to work, uh, and make sure that we took ourselves seriously in terms of our own lobbying and our own persuasion in a pure political way. So that that means making sure that your your people that you help elect know the agenda, what is the most ambitious we can possibly be now. If they do a great job leading because they're pro-life, then they, they deserve rewards. If they say they're pro-life and then they behave in another fashion, they deserve the private sector. And they, uh, and, and they feel the sting of not doing the job of protecting the unborn children that they say that they uh, are, were called to do. If the dairy industry and the tobacco industry can have that level of power, why not the children? And so while we were tiny, I mean, I, seriously tiny, like in my living room, tiny and a few thousand dollars tiny, it was just a series over years of working with allies, of course, across the country, but trying to choose the next most strategic battle to prove the, uh, to make a, basically a proof of concept that the pro-life movement it ha is so vast that if you could flex that muscle across the country, you could be a massive and strong um, and pure movement that could lead in, in certainly in the saving of lives, but I think in other ways in general, just shown by, by example, this is how you do it. And, um, and by God's grace, because frankly, there, the odds were against every single step going the right way. I know you both know what that looks like. 
Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, that did happen. And, um, and the, they, they did pay attention. It turns out that, that, uh, elected officials really care a lot <laughs> when, um, when you spend a lot of money against them and make sure, and, and all of a sudden they're looking face to face with their votes and their own hypocrisy. And that very, very, um, action of, of defeating people who had claimed to be pro-life is a, is a lesson to others not to do it. They notice and they realize that this is strong. Yeah. So if I could follow up on that kind of the political angle here, um, what, what would you say to kind of the naysayers who said for, for many, many years, this would never happen. Roe would never be overturned, you know, voting for Republicans to get the right justice on the court is a waste of time. And then conversely, people who say it doesn't really matter that we've overturned Roe, this, you know, is not that big of a deal, maybe not worth celebrating, or there's so much to do that, that this doesn't really count or, um, you know, that, that other kind of, uh, opposite line of attack. Yeah. I was thinking the Irish song, no, nay, never, nay, never, no more. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Those are the people uh, I've been to, Dubliner, just like you guys. Um, I uh, I think that though you know you you begin with an idea that you know, especially if you're a person of faith, uh, you know that there is a there there is a natural law reason that you could succeed, but it's never inevitable. Nothing is inevitable, and you do your best to make the best strategic decisions, and then you le- and and really do that. I don't want to like skate over that, really do that <laughs> and bring others along in good faith. And you, um, and then you leave the rest to God. I, 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 I can't overstate how central, uh, the Holy spirit, I believe has been at the center of all of this and how impossible so many things seemed. So it takes a little bit of, of strategic acumen and a lot of Holy spirit and speaking to now, um, there, you'd have to be whistling in the dark to say it doesn't matter now, which some people are. And sometimes Republicans are good at that when they get scared. Um, there, it absolutely is high impact now, number one, because of numbers of human beings saved in a very short period of time from, a, I don't know, how long has it been? A week and a half ago until now, 11 states have passed broad protections for unborn children. And, um, and those souls are are, are going to have an impact in our culture. Also, politically, it will have a big impact. It'll have a big impact on the midterms. It'll have a big impact on the presidential. It's just a matter of what type of impact. The folks that are scared are the, are the folks that will lead us into a, a very bad political situation. Um, the people who are bold and on offense, who are running in the Senate and the House, will, will feel the benefit of the moment um, in contrasting our position and theirs will uh, will help we've we've proved that premise every election cycle since 2014 that the, that we gain the advantage the marginal advantage uh and that's why we've been able to be well, that's why we are where we are so we're going to stick with a thing that works realizing that now the consequences are real not just theoretical yeah let, let me underline something you you just said for for our listeners i mean there are babies who are scheduled to be killed um, during the past week and a half, who are still living. Uh, sadly, some of those babies will probably be killed out of state, but many of those babies are going to be born in the next couple of months. And this time next year, those babies are going to be, you know, um, their teeth are be coming in. They'll start, you know, making the transition from, you know, liquids to some, you know, soft, mushy, solid food. I mean, there will be human beings um, roaming the world because of what the Supreme Court did. 10 days ago. 
because of what many in the pro-life movement spent 50 years working to make possible. And, and, and so for the people who say, oh, it's not a big deal that Roe was overturned, you know, people who spent all this uh, time and uh, talent and treasure making it possible didn't make a difference. There will be people, you know, walking and talking um, <laughs> who make a difference. And that's that's the immediate output. Um, but then we're cognizant that it's not done. You, you know, you mentioned it's 11 states that had those laws go into place. And we obviously want to see all 50 states uh, yeah. have those laws. So could you um, tell us what's next? I mean, what, as a leader of the pro-life movement, what do you see as you know, the top kind of action items for the movement as a whole? What's SBA focusing on? Um, what are your kind of uh, immediate priorities? Um, you know, give us kind of a preview of, of what's to come. So, um, Ryan, I'm blessed to work with you in coming up with the, the very solution in coalition with, with great pro-life leaders, some of the best people that I've ever known. Those are the people you meet in this movement. So anybody who's ever been on the sidelines, and especially if you're single, you should get off the sidelines and meet your future wife or husband. The great, it's a, such, a, such a moment of um, uh, where anyone on the sidelines needs to jump in, if you care at all, or even marginally, and get involved. Because, because of what you said, Ryan, and I'm going to underline what you underline, which is the value of one human being. The value of one, what you would do to save the life of another, um, and then th that's why this often gets a little bit so surreal that we can't wrap our minds around it, and so sometimes we don't act. Potentially, is because the the uh, only God I think can really understand the immensity of saving. Uh, how, what an what an um, a miracle it is to save all of those people, boys, girls, each intended for the world sent for purposes that only they could do, nobody else, that will change the world uh, in way un ways seen and unseen. And the effect of that on us as a, as a culture will, of course, only know eventually in heaven, but we also, hopefully we're all getting there. And then the, but also in the meantime, um, you know, 25, 50 years from now, there'll be family reunions, there'll be family branches of trees, family trees that never existed. It's just you know, as close to experiencing a moment of God that I think you can. Um, but the work, the work is, is of course the, the thing. And there are 11 states that have passed broad, that have passed broad protections. There are about six more that are kind of in play right now. So we look at it in tiers about who can be most ambitious first. So for us, it means that we've been so federally focused in order to get this, you know, the, get the Senate that we needed and the, and the, and this court that we needed because of the president that we needed. But now it, it has to be not just one front, but 51 fronts. And, um, and that is a big statement, <laughs> but I'm not deterred in any way. I am not in, in any, I don't in any way doubt that the pro-life movement has what it needs on the ground to, as we divide up the country and make sure that everyone in every state has what they need to pass ambitious pro-life protections um, in those states where we can be most ambitious because the movement has been there and building for decades. And, and when it really matters, which is now, it, uh, it is when those been, those who have been prepared or those who haven't been prepared can get off the sidelines or stay in the fight and make sure that we have those protections. So the long term, however, means we have to also stay focused on the on the um, federal level because 
uh, of what's going on in the House and Senate and the and the presidency right now. They are determined to pass a federal law that would make it impossible for us to do any of this work. Um, the 1984-ish named Women's Health Protection Act is being reintroduced again. I don't know how many times they're going to vote on this while during this session, but they're going to do it again. That's their standard moving into the midterms. All abortion, all nine months, for any reason, we pay for it. And and they they will not move off that. So during the midterm, so we have to get at least one of those houses. We, we're in an unpredictable environment. We believe that the wind is in our sails. Uh, the polling looks good and all that. But um, but we don't know. So the fight for the midterms is important and real um, and in a way to make sure that we have the privilege of passing all those laws all over the country. Just one more thing um, that I think that so the, the passing of the laws is like to say that is easy to say. The, the follow up will, however, be engaging politically is going to be vital in gubernatorial races, attorneys general, legislatures where we just need like one or two, like in Virginia, because without that, again, that growing political muscle, what we pass now could be undone easily by different majorities that that come after the current makeup in each state. Uh, so if I could, for, for our listeners who, like Ryan, did not read my wonderful piece about the rebrand of, of SBA list to <laughs> SBA Pro-Life America, could you tell us a bit more about um, how your group has you know, expanded to meet the moment? And in particular, uh, if you could talk a bit about, first of all, the expansion of the state affairs team and kind of the goal of that expansion. And then um, secondly, her plan, if you could just kind of familiarize listeners with that a bit. Yeah. So we um, we have... We will always maintain our federal affairs for the reason that I just said, because we have to make sure that we're uh, doing our best on the on the Capitol Hill. Um, but where the real need is, is on, is on the state level. So we have divided the state, the country up into regions, and we have directors of all of those regions working with all of the people that we've always worked with and, and respect so much that are already in those states um, we feel so completely prepared by our relationships with those great allies in those states where now we have a possibility for ambitious laws uh, to save as many children as possible. So that that team has uh, those folks are are hired. But then there is a we have a rolling out process that will go that will um, have it over a year or two where we're filling out the staff's under them. They'll have communications people. And clearly there is a, there is, will be a, a political plan, a meaning electoral plan for each of those regions as well. Her plan is an important central part of, of how we believed we needed to move forward. Started two, at least two years ago, maybe two and a half, where we saw Roe potentially overturning and needing to be able to answer the question how do you answer the, what am I going to do <laughs> shriek or prayer, um, that a woman has in the middle of the night and she can't, she can't get an abortion that is closed off. Thank God. But where else will she go? And certainly the, um, the almost 3000 pregnancy centers across the country are, uh, those are cornerstones and, and, and almost every community, we wanted to do something that hadn't been done, which was doing complete inventories of states where we believe that um, uh, where we could be most ambitious in passing laws. State like states like Georgia, 
doing a complete inventory of all services available to woman and child, especially in the first two years of life, at least the first two years of life. Um, organize around the seven triggers that compel often women to seek abortion in the first place. So they're, they're just, you know, physical and uh, medical needs of woman and child, financial, housing, uh, concrete needs, um, food, then also um, mental health and addiction issues, uh, and, um, and several others. The, so, and doing a map, a complete inventory of all those services everywhere in that state. And then that's really hard. <laughs> but then the next piece of it is making sure that they all know about each other because the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing often. And you may have a woman who comes in just because it's a food pantry, just because she, because she has a child and knows she needs help or is pregnant. And it's just, but she needs help in every, by the organizers there, she it's very clear she needs help in every other way. So it's really the, 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 um, the cross-pollinization of all of those types of organizations is, is key. That's a long explanation because it's super complicated. And, and then once you've, once you've done that map, of course it changes. Um, once you've made that map too, you're going to see, which we have, um, gaps after a gap analysis, seeing, you know, if you live in, you know, the outskirts of Rome, maybe there is not a place, uh, there's no housing that's affordable. So grants and creative approaches with governors um, are the way to help fill those. The governors themselves, Alexandra and Ryan, I just think it has been one of the best experiences of my life in the last 30 years to have had about, I guess we're getting close to about 25 meetings with governors in states where they know that they can be ambitious once Roe was overturned. I've had all those meetings leading up to uh, the Roe overturn, and now we're having the meeting, now we're meeting again, now that it's reality. Um, and they just, I mean, they're not all the same, but I've just, I've been so encouraged about uh, their love of of, of, of the law, getting that right, but then also making sure that in their own states, they have their own plan for meeting the needs of women in that pl- at that place. Yeah, that's so, um, that's so uh, both inspiring and uh, hopeful to hear that, you know, the governor's um, policymakers are thinking holistically about this, um, that, you know, in a post-Roe America, we can enact laws that will prohibit lethal violence in the womb Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a role for public policy making when it comes to, you know, you described it as filling in the gaps of kind of the social safety net of making sure that the various um, needs that uh, mothers have are met. Right. And no mother actually needs an abortion, but yeah. she does need housing. She does need health care. She does need food. She does need, you know, mm-hmm. fill in the blank. So um, how would you encourage pro-lifers to think about um, the role of the government and of kind of public policy when it comes to the more um, uh, demand side f- for abortion, right? If if shutting down Planned Parenthood is addressing the, the so-called supply side, mm-hmm. how should we be yeah. thinking about, you know, the te- Texas passed the Texas Alternatives yeah. to Abortion Program, Romney's introduced a family policy plan. Um, h- how are you thinking about it? How do you encourage other pro-lifers to think about it? I think it, in, in the way that those governors have led and what I've liked, and the, this has been my experience in talking to each one of them, that they each have uh, their own fingerprint, of course. Each state is very different from, from the other. E- even within regions, they're very different. They have programs that are preset. 
Um, they and so what uh, Governor Reeves of Mississippi, where this all began um, with his 15 week limit, he has taken it on himself to speak at every major church in the state, um, talking about what was coming, what the needs are, how they can cooperate with the with the um, with the federal government. Where you know one of my favorite things that he raised is there is a DMV in every community, and this is a this is this is a um, a uh, a potential great place for, you know, if you just to make sure there's a physical place to go, if you don't know where else to go to make sure that you have what you need. And, but his, but his is very focused on, on churches, supporting churches, and then also uh, services definitely from Mississippi. He's very focused on the private solutions, human beings, serving human beings. That of course is true of, of all, of all the governors, but a lot of the others are also focused on what direct services could come from the government, like in the $100 million um, uh, Alternatives to Abortion Act in Texas. Um, Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota, has uh, put up a, a great website with, with her own inventory of what's available in the state. It is a laboratory, the state laboratory of these ideas is one of the more exciting things that I think is happening right now. The laws themselves that stop the death of children, well, that is, nothing surpasses that. But the women, in those moments, I've thought about this a lot, especially having been very pro-abortion. Um, the, the women who I believe, who, who were told they can't get an abortion, but they're gonna be served in other ways, are very likely, in many cases, to be solving problems in their lives with the help of others that they would not have had the opportunity before if they had layered abortion upon problem upon abortion upon problem and kind of never seeing the light of day. There's so much hope for them and more hope than the other side will uh, will admit. And and I find it, I've seen you both write about it, and I'm, re I'm in the middle of reading your book, that the other side isn't willing to move at all to help her after mm -hmm. she's made that choice. I find, I find like, why, don't, why, don't, why are we not working together on this? It doesn't make any sense at all unless you're completely ideologically attached to the institution of abortion, but not so much motivated by helping women, really. Yeah, that's a great point. We do talk about that a bit in our book, just kind of the the pro-choice movement actually not being pro-choice at all, right? It's only They're only pro-choice if the choice is abortion. They'll do anything they can to make sure a woman gets an abortion, including, you know, all sorts of outrageous things, but uh, no interest in helping women who want to carry their babies to term. Uh, so let, let's talk a little bit more about policy and in particular at the federal level. I think, um, you know, rightly so, pro-lifers are thinking about state policy right now. That's the most feasible way of protecting unborn children, helping their mothers um, at this particular moment. But that won't always be the case. And there are states, extremely abortion-friendly states, where uh, it's going to be very difficult to get just laws in place. It will take decades. So uh, we have to think about the federal level, too. And so I want to ask you kind of what, what federal policy do you hope to see? Does SBA hope to see? And um, kind of along with that, I think there's sort of two pro-life visions. One would be a let a thousand flowers bloom, let every pro-life lawmaker kind of come up with a different thing. Maybe it's a heartbeat bill or a 20-week protection for unborn children or, you know, bring the born alive bill to the floor first or whatever it might be. Do you prefer that kind of strategy or is it more of a do we need a unified pro-life federal kind of step-by-step -step, uh, planning sheet? And I can't think of a better person to, to tell us what we should be doing uh, than you. <laughs> well, I, I feel like I'm a mom of of many children and like, what should we all have for dinner? <laughs> uh, <no. laughs> but, uh, but mom who maybe doesn't have the authority to say anyway, uh, 
I look, I do believe in, in many flowers blooming and building consensus when it really matters, you know, um, meaning now when laws actually could mean something to protect children. The problem on the federal level right now is that we have two needs. We have a need to form consensus around more, more um, ambitious proposals than the 20 week limit, in my opinion. That was really helpful politically and it worked politically, but we're 15 weeks coming out of Mississippi has established at least that minimum bar, in my opinion. So we have the need to form consensus around, uh, around, you know, from conception, um, heartbeat. uh, And I I think that's really, really vital. It's like a new education because, you know, in their minds, it didn't matter before. We could vote and say you're pro-life and it didn't matter. So there is that education. But the problem is there's a backstop of the filibuster. So Right now, it's going to be an education bill almost no matter what there is, but we have to build towards it. The second and urgent need that we have right now is to draw a contrast that favors our, especially our Senate candidates in battleground states where we can, will, where we will win or lose the Senate. And so their contrast and those, those uh, sitting senators or senators or hopefully future senators are contrasting with all abortion up until the end, paid for by taxpayers. I am for, or I voted for, um, 15 weeks is, you know, while it is not where we want to land, it is a contrast that really works and possibly heartbeat as well. But we're doing a lot of polling on that right now and we don't have it back. But there's only, in, in that scenario that I'm talking about, there is one, there is one goal and it is to draw a contrast that serves our candidates that they don't get sunk on this issue and therefore they we lose the Senate and and then also and and, and you know the, the same issue is obviously in the House. But then also, and we've seen this in the in many decades uh, past, but also it, but the but the threat is always there that when when we when you lose because of this issue, the sharks start swirling. And you know, all of a sudden unfortunately, it is just the way it is. The, the issue becomes back of the bus again, because you, because of this issue, killed the Senate, our possibilities. So it's a very cynical view, uh, given that I actually really believe in the leadership of so many um, senators, but I've seen it happen too many times. And that's why, to be succinct in the end here, I think a, a contrast that helps our Senate candidates right now is of most urgent need while we build towards uh, consensus on the more ambitious pieces like heartbeat and conception. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to, to me. And we actually, Ryan and I write along those lines in the conclusion of our book. Basically, I don't want to spoil it for those who are, are still reading, including you, but but the basic gist is um, we have to be unified in our, our ultimate goal, which is to abolish all abortion, to protect all unborn children. Uh, but we don't live in a, a dictatorship, right? And as, as nice as it might be to just wave a magic wand and tomorrow protect all unborn children from abortion, that's not how our, our political system works. And so we have to be realistic about how we're going to get there. And, and is it really the most realistic thing to tomorrow insist upon only a total ban of all abortions? Absolutely not, right? That's not going to get us anywhere. So I think you're, it's not really cynical at all. I think it's quite realistic and, and practical um, to, to draw that contrast you're talking about and, and demonstrate how the other side is just totally extreme on this and not at all where most Americans or even most Democrats are. Um, but along those lines, do you have any hope for a human life amendment to the Constitution in our lifetimes? Is that even ever going to be on the table again? Um. Yeah, I'll add to what you just said. That is how we got here. 
<laughs> we yeah. got here because we were providing contrast that, that benefited us all along the way, our position. Um, I, I pray so, because I don't think that it is only the state's, you know, the political calculus in a state should not determine whether a child lives or dies. Every child should be guaranteed the right to life. And whether it's a federal law or, a, or an amendment, um, I actually think that the amendment is already there. It's called the 14th Amendment. <laughs> and that building upon the understanding of uh, you don't take the rights away of others without, um, without due process and the guarantee of the 14th, the guarantees of the 14th Amendment, we can build on that as a, for a federal law. So I would look, the truth is, I know that there's a debate over that particular thing. That's the same de debate that really divided the movement and kind of sent us into many years in the desert in the early 80s. So meaning the debate between those who thought one was more important than the other. I think the most important thing now is to build, um, build for a federal law that, whose premise is grounded in the 14th Amendment. But I want to tell you this too, though. I believe that we must, that, all, that our laws have to, of course, be grounded in the amendment. That's why we have the, the uh, that's why we have the judges that we have on the Supreme Court. That's why we've had a revolution in, um, that has benefited life and many other causes in the courts. But also, just politically, that is really not why we've ever gotten the votes of senators. Uh, we, we've get, we get a lot of debate um, among senators about how to ground their vote often if we're being ambitious and they'll cite and have long conversation about um, how this is what how does the constitution treat this uh, this question but in the end we just have to make them vote <laughs> that's my view that's also Lindsey Graham's view and he's been he will introduce the 15-week bill uh, soon here and he certainly understands constitutional law um, and he's not troubled by the fact that we could pass a federal law um, and uh, but his solution is always just how, how about just people vote and you, you know, then we'll see how how troubling it is to you when it, when your constituents are really upset. Yeah. And and, and just on the, the 14th Amendment point, um, you know, one of our board members at EDPC, Robbie George, I think um, the amicus brief that he and John Finnis submitted mm -hmm. in the Dobbs case and then they subsequently um, have beefed it up and they've published it as a law review article. Um, really does make the case um, that as a original public meaning of the 14th Amendment, the word person did not mean Peter Singer style people, right? A higher consciousness humans. It meant every human being. Uh, and so when the 14th Amendment says no state shall deprive any person of equal protection of the law or due process of the law, they mean any human being. Uh, and then section five of the 14th Amendment explicitly empowers Congress to enact legislation to ensure that the guarantees of the earlier sections of the 14th Amendment are actually um, are actually protected. Um, and so, so I think you're you're exactly right um, uh, in setting that forward. And and Graham's right in saying, you know, at the end of the day, we don't have to um, agree on the theory, um, but we do have some practice to get to. And part of being a senator is, you know, voting for legislation. Um, That's why I actually love your book and that you two wrote that book. I, you represent both of those pieces. There's real politic, you know, uh, there's, and there's, uh, and that, but it has to be grounded. And so you, it keeps you on the reservation, but it makes you fight hard. And it, uh, you know, sometimes it, uh, the fight hard part seems ruthless, but not if you're staying, not, hopefully not if you're staying within the bounds of what our, what our founding fathers uh, crafted for us, the big gift, 
that has paid off yeah. time after time after time. And I can't, I have to believe that now, um, if they're able, that they are rejoicing in heaven about having finally gotten this right. Yeah. And so let me ask you a closing question. As, as we head into um, the 2022 midterms and then 2024 um, uh, general election, what is your kind of, um, what's your outlook and what are your marching orders? <laughs> so for the, there, for the midterm, it's coming so fast. And the, the battleground states are where, uh, you know, a handful of votes and a handful of states will determine whether we take back the House and the Senate. We have to take back at least one of those or we really stand uh, or we could really lose everything that we've just fought for, at least for now. Um, so getting involved in those battles and also the House battles and the Senate battles. You can do that by finding out where they are, making sure that you know on our website. Those are all the all those battlegrounds are there. The presidential is, of course, how we do in the midterms is going to influence who runs for president and how they speak about this issue. How they speak about it is a measure of their level of ambition for life. That's why it is a building block to do well in the midterms. Show you know once again show who we are, what we that our power is real. Um, the power of our ideas is real, that concrete results after all this work um, have have not terrified people. They've actually galvanized our movement in ways that we they could never have known before. And so the movement getting behind our those candidates is vital. It will have hopefully a ricochet effect when we're um, when we do well in those midterms with all of the people who are running who we know who most of them are, I think, uh, and for the primary stage that are uh, for ramping up to the presidency, our job will be to um, have them compete to who is the most pro-life. And what does that mean? That means, you know, how, who, who do you think will set out an agenda for life? And also, who do you think will actually do it once they get there? And so specifically, um, what will their pledge be? to the pro-life movement and to the nation, which is, which is pro-life movement is, we, our prayer is that it engulfs the nation and there will be not as many distinctions between them. Um, but so the marching orders are to pay attention and to get involved in, in those, especially in those battleground elections. All right. Well, that's a great place to end. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Marjorie. It's been great talking with you about all this. I'm a big admirer of both of you. Thank you for asking me to join you. Thank you. Well, thank you. We're, we're, we're big admirers yeah, of yours. Back at you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Life After Dobbs. Ryan and I are co authors of the new book, Tearing Us Apart How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, which you can order now. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. This podcast has been sponsored by the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can learn more about our work at our website, eppc.org, including our Life and Family Initiative. Mm-hmm.